Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View episode 383. This week, we're talking about anxiety. And Sarah, I'm anxious to talk about it. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that coming. And that really amused me. Um, You're welcome yeah, th- for the pun. <laughs> Um, I feel a little bit like our topics of late um, have been um, unusually illuminating for me. I don't know if you have felt this, but I have felt that as I research um, for, you know, answering, we've got a a really great listener question um, driving the conversation today. Um, But as I've been like researching these topics, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Should, should, no, not where it should. I was like, what? We'll, Where's this going? We'll commit to eating breakfast. We'll commit to mindfulness practice. This is going to be one of the, the key highlights go. of today. Um, but I, I actually am really interested in this topic. Um, we have a really great question from Kayla about um, generalized anxiety And because generalized anxiety disorder seems to run through my family, some of it diagnosed, some of it um, not diagnosed. Like, you know how you can, in families, you can compare notes and you can go like, oh, yeah, no, I have that too. And I have that too. Oh, yeah, this is what my doctor told me. You must have that too. And we kind of like do this like informal, like Dr. Google, but it's all conversation based on similar health challenges within families that is generalized anxiety disorder is one of the things that um, seems to be fairly common in my family. And so as I was, um, you know, digging into the topic in more detail than I ever have before, you know, it's, um, it's something that I've obviously done a fair bit of research on in the past, because it is something that I have also struggled with. Um, But getting into this level of detail in terms of like the neurobiology of general anxiety was like really fascinating. So, uh, yay for awesome questions. I am excited too. And I will say, cause I know Matt would be comfortable with me saying this. He has been formally diagnosed with anxiety and, um, both does therapy as well as, um, medication for, as we've talked about before, depression being in the family. And also um, he's had ADD and been on medication his whole life. When we went paleo, he was actually able to adjust a lot of that stuff. But it's, I want to put out there nothing wrong with, while we're going to talk about science and lifestyle and different kinds of things you can do, if it's making a quality of life difference for you to partake in modern medicine, as well as work on other lifestyle factors to, like I said, improve your quality of life, then please do not have shame or um, negativity associated with any of this. I think mental health is something that we've talked about previously on the show, and I feel very passionately in breaking down that stereotype of there being something wrong with someone for medical condition. And that is what keeps us from getting help and from feeling and living our best. And there have been many times in almost every single person that I know in my life who has sought medical intervention in some way or another for mental health. And anxiety is just like everything else. You can work on things, but you can also need or want um, additional support. And I encourage you to 
own that and to not be ashamed or afraid to seek help. And there are many different types of anxiety. We're going to talk about it. While Matt has been formally diagnosed in the last year, I've realized that my type A personality control freak tendencies also come with a very large side of anxiety (laughs) about when they don't go my way. And I never would have thought that I would be a person who would by definition have quote unquote anxiety because I am decisive. I am, you know, all the things that I think of with Matt's type of anxiety where he gets paralyzed and all of that kind of stuff were very different, but the result is the same. And so I say this both as a person with it and as married to someone who um, has worked on this since he was, you know, I think a preteen has known this condition about himself. So just know that you're not alone and that there's no stigma. And what we're going to talk about today, you have our support. And I know that there are people in your life who will also give you support if you choose to um, work on this and make changes. And, you know, doing that with someone is always best. But before we fully jump into the show, I want to thank the show's sponsor, Juve. We haven't had a sponsored show in a while. And this one is super important because as Sarah dives into the show topic, we're going to learn the science on why red light therapy and Juve would be an excellent solution. Um, But in addition to that, whether you have this condition or not, Juve has so many wonderful Mm -hmm. clinical tested scientific benefits on a range of many different things. And so we thank them for being a sponsor Um, on the show previously, as well as this week. If you want to check out Juve, it's J-O-O-V-V.com slash PaleoView. And you can read all about our favorites, why we love it, the scientific research, all of that kind of stuff on that page itself. And we also have a dedicated podcast um, on why we love it. But I'm sure, Sarah, you have much to talk about and jump into. <laughs> yeah, let's actually um, get into Kayla's question um, because we're going to talk more about red and near-infrared light therapy for depression and anxiety in a bit. But I really want to to start with, I think, the heart of this question, which is fantastic. Um, so this is what Kayla, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. It could be Kayla. Um, right. I think I, I, I think you you're going to go with Kayla. Yeah. All right. I think there's, of course, I'm sure we're both wrong, but that's what I would have gone with. So Kayla writes, the long version is this. I am super curious about what is happening in the body with generalized anxiety. I'm specifically interested in the kind of anxiety symptoms that arise without an antecedent or anticipation of a negative event. The generalized anxiety that appears seemingly out of nowhere, bringing chest tightness, fast heartbeat, and stomach unease on a perfectly lovely day. I've noticed that anxiety is a common secondary diagnosis for many with autoimmune disease, especially digestive ones, and I'm wondering if there's a certain inflammatory process tied to anxiety. As always, thank you so much for all that you do. I'm not exaggerating when I say you have saved my life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My goodness. Excellent question, but also thanks for the nice words. And I'm always blown away when um, we hear from people who have been positively affected. So wonderful to hear from you. And also kind of like a light bulb for me, um, like I mentioned with anxiety, I think it does come hand in hand with that type A personality, which we've talked about on the show as being prone to autoimmune because you're so wound tight that your body is um, likely consuming itself. Um, but I'm curious on on the science of this. Do you kind of just want to jump in? I do. I um I also want to emphasize that um, because of Kayla's question and because um, mental health, this sort of like group of mental health challenges um, that encompass, right, depression, anxiety, of anxiety, there's also, right, phobias can, can fall under the same umbrella, PTSD can fall under this umbrella. I'm really honing in on generalized anxiety disorder here, um, and that's in part because the details of what's going on with different mental health challenges 
are, are, are different, right? So they manifest as different symptoms, but also the details of what's happening in terms of neuroanatomy, uh, neurotransmitter regulation, HPA axis activation, all of those things are a little bit different. And because it it's such a huge can of worms to kind of consider all forms of, um, you know, depression and anxiety disorders, I've really focused on generalized anxiety disorder. But also I want to emphasize that within generalized anxiety disorder, there's a huge spectrum in terms of uh, the symptoms that are experienced, the severity of the symptoms. And so that's one of the things that I, I want to sort of highlight as I jump in, because I think it's really important. This was definitely one of those topics that as I researched, I realized that, you know, having had generalized anxiety disorder um, diagnoses in the past, um, I've had periods of my life where I've had anxiety attacks and I've had these in-between periods where I don't have anxiety attacks and I feel like I'm doing so much better. And as we get into some of the symptoms that may seem um, not obvious in terms of their link to anxiety, um, one of the things that really stood out for me was those in-between times, I can still check off a bunch of those symptoms. And so for me, this was a very eye-opening topic to to really dive into this level of detail because it made me realize the room for improvement in terms of how I'm um, working to improve my own mental health. So all of that being said, what is generalized anxiety disorder? Um, it is considered a psychological disorder or a mental health challenge that is very simply described as an exaggerated or an extreme response to a normal challenge. Um, and that response is very specifically anxiety, which can um, also be defined as sort of like worry and agitation without a um, obvious stimulus. So it's about nothing in particular, nothing at all, or something that um, would normally elicit a much reduced level of response. So it's either uh, no trigger or a trigger, but an exaggerated response. It impacts approximately five to 6% of Americans at some point in their lives. And given the high prevalence of undiagnosed anxiety, um, potentially even much more so. Women are about twice as likely to develop generalized anxiety disorder as men. The prevalence increases with age, so we're more likely to develop it the older we get. It typically will appear anywhere between uh, young adulthood and through our mid-50s, but it can occur at any point in life, and we can have um, we can have it multiple times. So it's one of those things that uh, can be treated with something like SSRIs. Um, after a few years, you know, wean off the SSRIs, symptoms go away, and then it can reemerge a decade or two decades later. Genetics accounts for about 30 to 50% of risk for developing generalized anxiety disorder, and environment accounts for 50 to 70%. So this is why generalized anxiety can run in families, um, but it's also seems to require some kind of uh, environmental stimulus. It's actually thought to work through epigenetic mechanisms. So something in the environment, in the term environment here encompasses things like diet and lifestyle. Um, it can encompass things like infections and toxin exposures as well. Um, but something that is literally turning on or off a gene that is then triggering this whole cascade of events. So um, what is interesting is the list of symptoms is really, really long. Um, the most, um, I don't necessarily want to say common symptoms, but the, the most stereotypical symptoms include excessive and ongoing worry and tension, right? Feeling stressed, feeling anxious, having a, an unrealistic perspective on problems um, so that we see uh, a challenge as being a much bigger challenge than it is or a less solvable challenge than it actually is, um, feeling edgy or irritable, feeling restless, having generalized muscle tension. So if you, for example, I get um, tension in my jaws sometime, not realizing that I've been holding tension there so much so that my jaw will hurt. Um, but it could be muscle tension anywhere, headaches, um, including muscle tension headaches, but also things like migraines, 
um, increased sweating, uh, lack of concentration or concentration deficits, but also things like racing thoughts or unwanted thoughts, um, increased uh, urinary or uh, bowel uh, frequency, so the need to go to the bathroom more often can be a symptom of generalized anxiety disorder, feeling tired, fatigued, especially morning fatigue, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Upwards of 70% of people with generalized anxiety disorder have some kind of sleep disturbance, um, including insomnia. Um, trembling or having a, a slight tremor to your hands, being easily startled, so um, jumping in next, you know, when there's a loud noise or something like that. Um, and having either an elevated resting heart rate or sort of feeling like our heart is racing. Those are like, and not that everyone needs to experience all of those, right? So that is the list of the more stereotypical symptoms for anxiety. I put together a list of the less obvious symptoms, those that are, are not um, recognized as readily because these are some of the symptoms that I have um, experienced on an ongoing basis. And this was the list that really spoke to me. So there's something called burning mouth syndrome, where you feel like you've just eaten, you know, a food that was too hot and you've burned your mouth. That actually can be linked to anxiety. Tinnitus or ears ringing. Um, this is a key feature of my anxiety is, is ear ringings. It's actually the first thing that happens when I'm having an anxiety attack. Um, but tinnitus by itself can be linked to anxiety. Tunnel vision, something I also get in an anxiety attack, uh, where you start to sort of lose your peripheral vision. Um, yawning uh, a lot can, I mean, it's also related to the sleep disturbance, but it can be also related to the um, behavioral reaction to anxiety. Any kind of unexplained muscle pain can be related. Having cold feet having uh, numbness or tingling in the arms or legs, so something that you might think is carpal tunnel, for example. Uh, losing your voice or having hoarseness can be related to anxiety. Um, rashes or acne can be related to anxiety. Irritable bowel syndrome or any basically any kind of GI symptom uh, can be related. Loss of libido um, and hair loss are all things that can also be related to anxiety. And again, there's, there's a spectrum. So there's, can um, I ask, cause some of these mm -hmm. things, for example, hair loss could also be tied with autoimmune condition thyroid, sure. which will be, um, you could have a flare if you are enduring something like a high stress period mm -hmm. of time. Right. So I'm wondering like how much of this is uh, causation versus correlate correlation, or do so we these know? These, so all of these symptoms are things that could also be caused by something else. So if you hear these symptoms and you go, well, like my arms tingle and I have, you know, digestive symptoms and hair loss, those can all be symptoms of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, as you very acutely <laughs> observed. Um, this list of symptoms gets put here because there's mechanisms explaining all of them related to the hormone and neurotransmitter um, changes that specifically occur in generalized anxiety disorder. So they can also all be explained purely by anxiety. Um, so that's not to say that if you can check, you know, seven or eight symptoms off of this giant list, that that means you for sure have generalized anxiety disorder. Um, Cause again, it, um, it can be related to something else. And there are certain autoimmune diseases uh, so Hashimoto's thyroiditis tends to correlate more with depression than anxiety. Uh, Graves disease, disease, which is hyperthyroidism, tends to correlate with uh, anxiety rather than depression. And that's in part because some of the uh, pathways that are being triggered by the autoimmune disease are the same pathways that are being triggered um, in generalized anxiety disorder. So you get this like snowball of bad happening, which I'll talk about in a little bit more detail when I, I get into the role of inflammation in this whole process. But what's actually really interesting about generalized anxiety disorder is the mechanisms behind all of these different symptoms are really tied to uh, some neuroanatomical changes. So some actual changes in the structure of our brain, as well as neurobiological. So how activity of different brain 
regions is being impacted, but then there's also a neuroendocrine um, and a neurotransmitter piece to it. So there's um, hormones that are neuroactive, right? Like cortisol, like um, insulin, like melatonin, um, sex hormones, um, all of those things can have an impact uh, on the brain. Neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, GABA, um, and then also this this neuroanatomical changes. So it's it's kind of this confluence of events, and it's um, there's an interesting sort of like chicken and egg question that is occurring with generalized anxiety disorder. Like, what is the preceding change is not necessarily understood. So there's not very well understood, like, what's the thing that happens first? It's more that we know that when you have all of these things out of whack in this very specific way, it triggers these symptoms of anxiety. Um, And then what's also very fascinating about as you dig into that research is teasing out the differences between anxiety and other mental health challenges gets increasingly more challenging because of the high rate of co-occurrence. So for example, approximately two thirds of people with generalized anxiety disorder also have major depressive disorder. And about one quarter of people with generalized anxiety disorder also have panic disorder. And those are all their their own diagnoses. Um, There's also a much higher rate of addiction in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So separating out what brain changes this thing versus this thing can be a little bit challenging. Um, but at the same time, just in the last few years, especially as imaging techniques have improved our ability to measure these things in a non-invasive way, there's been some really interesting advances in terms of our understanding of generalized anxiety disorder. And it, it seems to be, um, you know, which comes first, uh, being not necessarily super identified here. But the thing that's happening in the brain that is driving all of these symptoms and that is driving the anxiety, as as Kayla mentioned, that seems out of nowhere, that doesn't seem to have any obvious trigger, is uh, the overactivation of two specific regions of the brain. One is the cerebral cortex. So that is the outermost layer of the brain, which is where we do a lot of our thinking, our decision-making Um, A lot of our um, uh, things like uh, planning, um, very, you know, things that are very intentional cognition comes from that area. And then the amygdala, which is sometimes referred to as our reptile brain, it's a very primitive part of our brain that is central to emotional processing. So both of those areas of the brain are overactivated in generalized anxiety disorder, but they're also less connected than normal. So they don't talk to each other the way that they normally would. In particular, the amygdala overactivation is taking over. And so what the amygdala does is it, um, beyond uh, being sort of in charge of our emotions, it basically monitors uh, our environment and how our body's reacting to our environment to evaluate uh, the emotional significance of anything going on. And then it organizes our emotional responses. But the amygdala is also um, a really important sort of reflex uh, center. And so it initiates our responses to danger. And in particular, the amygdala can communicate with the hypothalamus Um, to drive the release of hormones. And this is where the HPA axis is activated when the amygdala is overactivated. So it can drive a heightened fight or flight response. Um, And it does this in a way that doesn't, in generalized anxiety disorder, doesn't bring in the cerebral cortex, which is the part of our brain, which is, you know, assembling information and making decisions. So the amygdala, when it's overactivated, Um, actually I would say, taking a step back, one of the things that the amygdala can do is it is the thing that allows us to react to something dangerous before we've even fully processed it. So, uh, if you've ever ducked when something, a ball has been flying towards your head because you're uh, talking with another parent at the basketball court or somebody's throwing something, you duck before you even fully recognize that something was flying at your head. 
or um, you know, somebody might jump out of the way of a of a car coming at them in the crosswalk before they even realize that the car is actually there or going too fast or not stopping. That response before you fully perceived the stimulus is the amygdala. So when the amygdala is hyperactive, at the same time as it's not connecting very well to the part of our brain that is where our higher order thinking is happening, we have these instinctual reactions to perceived danger at the same time as the part of our brain that would normally assemble that information to identify danger is not talking to the amygdala. So that is what is driving these anxiety attacks that can seem out of nowhere. The amygdala is detecting something that it thinks is dangerous. It's on, it's on overdrive and the body is reacting without the part of the brain that is processing all of that information, actually communicating um, that there there might be something worth being anxious over. And so what's um, what's then like the downstream and upstream effect, right? So there's this interesting positive feedback loop that's happening is that um, certain neurotransmitter imbalances activate the amygdala, but the activated amygdala contributes to neurotransmitter imbalances. So there's all kinds of different flavors of what can be happening in terms of neurotransmitters. And that's why some people with generalized anxiety disorder respond really well to SSRIs and some people don't. Um, but generally you can have like any of the following, you can have suppression of inhibitory neurotransmitters. So a uh, GABA, uh, the GABA system is especially implicated in generalized anxiety disorder, but you can have increased of excitatory neurotransmitters. You can have a combination of them. Um, you can have increased secretion of um, things like serotonin or norepinephrine, um, and you can also have other neuropeptides that, um, especially in the opioid system, that remembering that the opioid system is a natural system in the body, um, that is all causing the amygdala to go on overdrive. And then as Kayla very rightly pointed out, there's also an inflammation piece. And this is really interesting because it's it's still chicken and egg. So we know that in generalized anxiety disorder and actually all you know depression and phobias and um, uh, situational anxiety, that there is definitely increased markers of inflammation um, there's increased cytokines, there's increased general markers like C-reactive protein. And we know that those pro-inflammatory uh, markers are actually directly modulating um, effective behavior. So we know that the more inflamed you are, the more impaired effective behavior is. And effective behavior is any behavior um, that is that we do consciously in order to produce a desired result, right? So like showing up at work on time in order to keep our job would be a, a classic example of effective behavior. So effective behavior is strategic behavior that, that we are doing. The more inflamed we are, the less likely we basically are to be strategic in our choices. Um, and so there's this um, data showing that because inflammation is impacting behavior, behavior that is at least tangentially related to anxiety, um, and because we know that there's increased inflammation and anxiety, um, it's possible there's, there's now um, studies starting to be produced that are looking at modulating inflammation as a way of treating anxiety. That data still is nowhere near at a level to be able to um, make any, you know, conclusions on. But what's interesting is I mentioned sort of chicken and egg here. It's thought that what's happening is that not that the inflammation is causing the anxiety, but that the anxiety is causing the inflammation. So when you activate the stress response, which we have an overactive HPA, a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Uh, as part of that overactive amygdala in anxiety. Um, so as the that stress response is being activated, the uh, hormones that are being released as part of the stress response are inflammatory. So that is activating generalized systemic inflammation in the body. 
But then you have the snowball of bad effect where you have the positive feedback loop that's actually has a very negative outcome, which is that the um, inflammation itself is augmenting the uh, symptoms and having a direct effect on the regions of the brain that are critical for regulating fear and anxiety. So the inflammation is actually contributing to the amygdala and um, uh, cerebral cortex overactivation, also potentially contributing to their lack of connectivity while magnifying the symptoms that are related to that activation and then stimulating the stress response to cause more inflammation. So you're getting this feedback loop. So what actually happens first is not very well known, but it's probably this particular link to inflammation that is why, at least anecdotally, we seem to see a fair amount of generalized anxiety disorder in people with autoimmune disease, but also given that autoimmune disease is very common and generalized anxiety disorder is very common. Um, I wasn't able to find any genes that were risk genes for both, um, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means I wasn't able to, to find that easily in a PubMed search. Um, but it does explain potentially why there's a link. I think it makes a lot of sense from my perspective when you said it's causing the inflammation. Like that was has always been my take on this, I call it type A personality, but really mm -hmm. anything where you feel the need to be controlled or a leader or whatever, I think it's you put the pressure on yourself, which in then internalizes that into stress and pressure on your body. I know like I get digestive issues, for example, before a job interview. I think that's like a, a common yeah. one people can understand, right? Like that's, that's you putting stress on your body that's causing digestive, not that the digestion is causing you to be anxious. It's, it's clearly the anxiety and stress of what's mm -hmm. about to happen is, is causing that result. So I can see it and um, yet couldn't make the connection before Kayla's question. So thanks for bringing that full circle. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it really interesting because as you take a step back, you can really easily recognize the link to chronic stress. Um, you can really easily recognize the link to inflammatory processes, right? So there's, um, there's some interesting research sort of ongoing to try to identify a pathogenesis, which means like how this thing actually starts. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, once, once this ball is rolling downhill, there's like nothing to stop it. Right. It's, um, really, really complex to intervene when you have stress, creating more inflammation, creating more stress, magnifying anxiety symptoms, magnifying the perception of stress, magnifying inflammation, right? So as you're, as you're tying all of those things together, you're like, okay, so what, what is my, where's my intervention point, which is, you know, why there's been so much research done into, um, pharmaceutical interventions. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into, the pros and cons of pharmaceutical interventions for generalized anxiety disorder, because I feel like that's a conversation to have with your doctor. Um, a lot of that is going to be really dependent on exactly how generalized anxiety disorder is manifesting for you, because there's so many different symptoms that can be related. And the magnitude of those symptoms can vary so much from person to person. And where you are in terms of everything else, I do want to mention, as I, I do want to talk a little bit about diet and lifestyle for generalized anxiety disorder. And I think that it's really important to make the statement that medication is not failure. Smart and judicious informed use of conventional medical interventions like pharmaceuticals, um, surgeries doesn't apply here, but I, you know, if we talk broad strokes here, what the conventional system can offer us does not mean we failed at diet and lifestyle. Doesn't mean we didn't paleo or AIP hard enough. Um, I think that often our health gets to a point where we enter this community where using the best of all worlds is the, is the way to expedite 
recovery. And we can be in a situation where the use of a pharmaceutical um, or a supplement can actually improve how our body is responding to our other choices. So for example, um, I was trying to get into sleep research and generalized anxiety disorder because I find that link really interesting. There's lots of studies showing that not getting enough sleep is inflammatory, that uh, not getting enough sleep magnifies um, the stress response, that a generalized anxiety disorder is very strongly linked with sleep disturbance. And so my question was, well, if you work on sleep, if you can get more sleep, does that improve your symptoms of anxiety? And as far as I can tell, that research doesn't exist because it's all from the other perspective, right? Trying to understand how generalized anxiety causes sleep disturbance. And, and so where your intervention point is, if you're have insomnia because you have generalized anxiety, but getting more sleep would improve your anxiety, how do you get more sleep? And that's where talking with your doctor about various options may be a really great way to intervene because then your body can respond to that choice that you're making to do all of the sleep hygiene and circadian rhythm entrenchment things that you can do to improve your sleep. But until you have that, you know, that boost that conventional medicine can, can sometimes offer and you understand you know, I always recommend doing your research on all of these different interventions so that you understand the pros and cons, but that can be the thing that breaks that snowball of bad effect, right? So like, how do we stop, stop that snowball rolling down the hill? But that's also where I think a couple of other um, lifestyle interventions to me were the, the, the research was very exciting. So um, I'm going to start with the least exciting and I'm going to move up. So um, there's enough studies looking at activity as an intervention or exercise as an intervention for generalized anxiety disorder that there have now been some meta-analyses, and our listeners will know that I like me a meta-analysis. Um, what's interesting is they very uniformly show that exercise interventions reduce symptoms. There's some where they've combined it with functional MRI um, uh, imaging and shown also improvements to the uh, neurobiology that's happening behind anxiety. But there's not enough research to have a guideline. So there's not enough research to say uh, it's better to say walk 30 minutes every single day or do an hour of cardio four times a week or strength training. Like that part of the guidelines is there's just not enough data yet to make any kind of statement other than activity is going to be beneficial. Um, it's interesting because it's also activity is also known to improve symptoms of depression. And since these are so often comorbid, it makes a lot of sense to incorporate more activity. I would, you know, my reading of, of where the science is at right now, if there's no specifics in terms of recommendation, my personal recommendation, keeping in mind that I am not your doctor and you're always going to check anything I say with your doctor, would be to just do whatever you like doing that fits into your life, right? Like um, I, I had a yoga teacher who used to say, do it so that you like it, so that you like doing it, which even though um, I don't go to yoga classes anymore, I do yoga. I'm going to need own. you to repeat that one. Do it so that you like it, so that you like doing it. That's a good one. Right? Um, I I love that philosophy and I I've taken that, into, you know, CrossFit and everything else that I do. Um, I think it's much more important to set ourselves up to be consistent with activity than it is exactly what we do, at least where the research is now. I think it's interesting for me. I know um, physicality has always been a relief from a variety of perspectives, but I think also, um, especially if you have an autoimmune disease, it's important to be mindful of whatever that is and the stress mm -hmm. on your body. So I know lifting was awesome for me. CrossFit from a cardio perspective, not so much. Right. So right. it's, it's really a variation of, um, where you are with your body. And I know with me, when I had my back injury, there was an excess of inflammation happening from there, took me a while to calm that down. And then now moving into water aerobics, 
um, as finally being something that I can do. But also I've had to be mindful because when my black, when my back flares and all of that kinds of stuff, there's extra stress in my life. It actually does, um, increase that inflammation in my Mm. back from a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, and so all of that to say, I think gentle exercise is something everyone can do. It's a matter of finding it and being aware of what you have going on in your life and the degree to which you participate in these, in those activities. I mean, I can go hardcore in water aerobics. Like we've, we've talked about it before as being like a legit exercise, but there's also just, you know, kind of half yoga in the water (laughs) and doing things slowly. So it's, it's being aware, I think of how those activities maximize a benefit to you and your body and reduce inflammation and reduce stress. Um, But also, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, things like taking a walk in sunlight and getting the vitamin D and getting the fresh air for earthing and all of that kind of stuff as as being opportunities to reduce stress and anxiety as well. Yeah, there's some really interesting research showing that time in nature causes like an immediate reduction in uh, blood pressure, right? Various ways that we measure parasympathetic activation, which is your like rest and digest uh, nervous system. So it's it's the calming part of your nervous system compared to your sympathetic, which is your fight or flight. And so, you know, while, um, you know, again, you know, data in terms of like nature therapy is still very preliminary when it comes to, to uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Mechanistically, it makes sense that that would be helpful. And I can tell you that one of the things that I um, have implemented in my own life, um, after my health really taking a, a downward spiral this fall, um, was to, uh, as often as I can. So I'm aiming for at least three times a week, cause I'm still going to the gym four times a week, but reigning in the intensity there. Um, I try to on the other days go for, you know, just a half hour walk in the middle of the day by myself without my phone or my phone can be in my pocket for safety, but not playing on it, um, or not listening to something, but really just being in my own head, um, and taking a a 30 minute walk around my neighborhood. And that has something that I think, um, is an excellent segue into mindfulness. Um, because one of the things that we tend to do now is, um, occupy our brains all day, right? We tend to, if we're doing something that doesn't need our brain, uh, you know, I, I very commonly listen to a podcast while I'm cooking or an audiobook. Um, I, I've tended to pack more stimulus into everything that I do so that if my, my brain is not actively being engaged, um, but say my eyes and my hands are like I'm driving, for example, I mean, that does use part of the brain, but just not all of it. Um, I will have something, I will have something else stimulating, you know, have the radio on or whatever it is. And one of the things that I've really tried to do is to make time every single day for mindfulness, um, at least have time to be in my own head and just be okay with a blank brain, be okay with feeling bored, be okay with, you know, not being super stimulated. And so what's really fascinating with um, generalized anxiety disorder is potentially one of the most effective interventions is mindfulness practice. Um, There was a a really fascinating study published. um, There's been a bunch of studies looking at mindfulness for anxiety, depression, um, the entire spectrum. There was one that um, really stuck out for me. It was published a couple years ago because what they did was they compared mindfulness to stress management education. So you can imagine stress management education would include, you know, things like saying no and time management and getting enough sleep and getting exercise and diet, right? Like it would include all of those basic recommendations that we make for, for increasing our resilience to stress, right? Don't overdo the caffeine, don't overdo the sugar. Um, so they took, um, 25 people with generalized anxiety disorder. They also had a control group of, of 25 people with, um, who were considered normal. Um, and, uh, 
And then they divided, subdivided both of those into two groups of one doing an eight-week mindfulness intervention and really what would be considered entry-level mindfulness. So they were doing body scan um, meditations, for example. Um, they were taught some basic breathing techniques. And they, they only had, they had one two-hour session with a teacher sort of teaching various mindfulness techniques a week. And then we're sort of instructed to practice every day, but it wasn't, um, you know, these weren't people who were doing, you know, an hour of meditation every day. Um, it was very, I think, accessible level. And what was really powerful about this study was they didn't just do symptom analyses. Those are basically done with various um, uh, sort of questionnaires and then they get a score but it was, they actually did functional MRI imaging to look at changes in the brain. And what they showed was that there was definitely a benefit to stress management education, but in every single metric, mindfulness outperformed basic stress management techniques. Um, so what they actually showed is mindfulness reduced amygdala activation, which is that key thing that is driving uh, the anxiety. Um, it increased um, activation in a specific area called the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, um, which uh, helps to mitigate a lot of those symptoms. But more importantly, is it um, mindfulness increased connectivity um, between the amygdala and these um, cerebral cortex regions that are so important. So the stress, interestingly, in this study, the stress management education also reduced amygdala activation, just not as much as mindfulness, but it did not increase connectivity between the amygdala and the cerebral cortex. Um, and then both resulted in a reduction in anxiety symptoms, but mindfulness was even more so. And for me, this, this particular study, um, especially in the context of it not being the only study proving that mindfulness is very effective for um, anxiety and, and depressive symptoms, um, this was a very compelling study because it compared mindfulness to something that I would have thought, I, I would have thought that other stress management techniques would be equal and that the, the more important thing is sort of that actively working to manage stress. Um, but it, it showed that mindfulness actually had a benefit above and beyond stress management. Um, and it specifically had benefits in terms of how different regions of the brain are communicating with each other. And given that um, a failure for different regions of the brain to communicate with each other is one of the drivers of anxiety, especially the part where we're reacting to either really banal stimulus, right? Like I remembered that I have that bill that's due next week and then I have an anxiety attack or no stimulus whatsoever. I think working to increase that connectivity through mindfulness, it, it was very compelling and um, made me certainly recommit um, completely. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was, was some diet links. This is, um, I would say, the diet links tend to be related to risk. And so there are a few of these where, uh, for example, omega-3s, um, B-complex vitamins in general, vitamin D, where supplementation has been shown to improve anxiety symptoms. Um, however, overall, it seems important to make sure we're not deficient, but it's potentially not enough to just restore sufficiency of all of these nutrients that we need to address the lifestyle um, stimulus because that's a that's a bigger contributor to the development of generalized anxiety disorder than the nutritional deficiencies. But the ones that have been specifically linked, uh, and these are either in studies where deficiency is known to increase risk of anxiety or that supplementation has been shown to help. So the ones I already mentioned, uh, B-complex vitamins, especially B9 or folate and B12, vitamin D, omega-3 fats, calcium, chromium, iodine, iron, lithium, selenium, and zinc. Um, lithium is an interesting one because, of course, it's uh, used as a medication for various uh, psychiatric disorders. 
um, there are natural sources of of lithium, um, especially mineral rich. So you would get a little bit of lithium, for example, if you're eating seaweed. Um, and it's it's a mineral that uh, a recommended daily allowance has not yet been established because we need so little of it. Um, but there there is definitely some research showing that increasing lithium can potentially help with some of these symptoms. Um, but I, instead of, you know, that so for some people taking lithium as a medication may be helpful. Um, but for a lot of us, this is another reason to consume foods that are rich in trace minerals. Um, so that includes things like a unrefined, uh, salt, like uh, Himalayan pink salt, um, or something like sea vegetables that have, you know, those things can have 70, 80, 90 different trace minerals. And that's where you're getting something like lithium. Everything else, to me, almost all of those nutrients are very richly found in seafood. And so this this became a very like, oh, that's in seafood. That's in seafood. That's in seafood. It was a very seafoody list. Seafoody list. <laughs> um, I think also I don't want to like push past mindfulness too much because mm -hmm. I feel like we've talked a lot about nutrient density and I hope our listeners have been paying attention and if it's your first time definitely go back and listen to our you know some of our other shows on that because I don't want to gloss too much over how important nutrient sufficiency is I know my own um anxiety like I used to have panic attacks um went away when I switched to a paleo diet, both from a reduction of inflammation, I'm sure, as well as nutrient yeah. sufficiency. Um, but I think mindfulness is so important. And it's something that um, I've been trying to get Matt to hear. So Matt, mm -hmm. I know you're listening. Um, mindfulness. My, Matt, so Matt, Matt, mindfulness. Especially, I think, as someone with ADD, um, stimuli is absorbed a little bit differently for him personally. Um, but for a lot of people who have tendencies towards that, or even if you don't, we have a tendency to fill our lives a hundred percent. Like, you know, I was thinking about, um, it because I was watching Ms. Maisel and it's like in the olden days before, cell phones and whatever right so she's like talking to people and public transportation not everybody is looking at their phone or listening to their headsets or whatever and I'm a culprit of that just as much as anyone else but um I think when it's something for example like a podcast where it's really like getting your brain to think a lot so I think for example when you were going on your walks and you're going without stimuli that ability to really allow your brain to recharge and relax mm -hmm. and recover. I, th I believe, although the science is not probably there, I believe there's probably something to cellular regeneration or something like that with that lack of stimuli. Do Does that make sense? Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, so they've actually shown in traumatic brain injury that um, mindfulness practice can um, increase cellular regeneration in the brain. Um, so yes, look like I just suppose these things and you're like, that's I'm a thing, like, Stacey. Yeah, it sure is. Um, <laughs> Hypothesis. Want, yes. I want um, to recommend a book here, um, for, for Matt, because he's pointed me to some excellent fiction books in the past. Um, but also for all of our listeners, um, it's called Mindsight by, uh, Dan Siegel, who is a professor in, uh, neuropsychiatry at, uh, UCLA. Um, and he runs the uh, mindfulness accreditation program there, but he also, you know, he's got a, you know, neurobiology background. So he actually is also an active researcher and he's um, been involved in a lot of the research that has um, looked at mindfulness, right? Taking, taking the Buddha out of mindfulness and looked at at those types of sort of breathing practices and body scan meditations and, and shown the benefits and Mindsight is a fairly recent book of his that I think makes meditation very accessible, um, and really helps to sort of lay out procedures because I think that while I practice mindfulness and have practiced it for, uh, with varying degrees of consistency, mind for 30 
five years. I started when I was minus six. That's how that math works. Um, it It's not something that I think is easy for people who haven't been trained as teachers to teach. And so there's, I mean, obviously also lots of great apps that can help, um, you know, do guided meditations. But I, I really like this book in terms of how it sort of explains what's happening in the brain when we do mindfulness practice and then also walks through, I think, very accessible ways. So I know, Stacey, you have mentioned on the podcast before that you have a really hard time with meditations. And, um, and I think that for other people who really resonate with the, like I listen to, and I've talked with other people, you're not the only one who just really find themselves very impatient with a guided meditation. This is the book. This is the book that, that I think really helps, um, make mindfulness a practical tool for people to use every day. So I know that it's going to seem like this is a setup, but in actuality, in absolute 100% truth, I have found the ability to what I would call meditate. It is a version for me, mindfulness, while I'm juving. Um, and I've talked really? about... Really? I know, right? I've talked about this on the show before, but I give myself kind of half the amount of time because I, I face both front and forward on the juve. And so I like tell myself okay, you've got 10 minutes while you're juving your back to look at your phone and to like do whatever it is that you think you need to do urgently this morning, check your email, you know, all of the things. But when, when this 10 minutes is up, you're turning around, your phone's going down and you're closing your eyes and you're doing this red light therapy. And so it's 10 minutes. It's, you know, could I improve that? And get better and do more. Absolutely. But that's 10 minutes that I'm shutting off my brain and allowing myself to have self care and to center myself and that kind of stuff, which I think is, um, been super helpful for me. There is no like guided meditation with woo woo sounds like that's not for me, (laughs) but, um, this is a way that has been helpful, not just from, um, the mindset perspective, but also because I know that I'm taking care of myself physically by doing the time for the red light therapy. So I'll put that out there for those people that also (laughs) have challenges with meditation. Um, that has been a way that I've been able to incorporate it into my life. So, um, that is very cool. I will say that studies show that mindfulness as little as 10 or 15 minutes, minutes per day actually can have a measurable, um, beneficial effect. So, um, I think 10 minutes a day is a, a great accessible place to start. Um, I actually, I've been meaning to write a very detailed blog post on, there's been a ton of new research in the last like year, year and a half on, photobiomodulation, which is what Juve is, it's, you know, red and near infrared light therapy, um, and how those same wavelengths, especially the near infrared wavelength that Juve delivers can help regulate HPA axis activation, regulate cortisol. It actually can have an immediate cortisol lowering effect, um, at least in, um, people who have high cortisol, um, and it's been shown to have antidepressive and anti-anxiety effects in a, in a collection of studies now, just from the last, again, like year, year and a half. And, um, and I have been meaning to sort of like write this whole detailed blog post with all the science. Um, I haven't had time yet, but to sort of give people the broad overview, um, there's, there's actually some really interesting science showing that especially near infrared light therapy um, can actually have a, a pretty dramatic improvement. Um, and there's been studies done in both humans and in animals. Um, an interesting one to note, there was um, a mouse study. There's a pair of them actually that were just published this year showing that near infrared light therapy lowers cortisol, reduces HPA axis activation and reduces, I mean, in mice you're measuring um, anxiety and depressive uh, symptoms through behavior, but so it was reducing behaviors that are related to anxiety and depression. And one of the studies also combined with CoQ10 supplementation and showed that there was benefit to each near infrared light therapy and CoQ10 and that the benefits were additive, which was kind of a, a cool little thing that hasn't been replicated in humans yet, 
Um, but that was, that to me was like definitely worth mentioning. Um, but it's been interesting because there was a, a, a study just published a couple months ago. Um, it was a pilot study in humans, but it was specifically looking at generalized anxiety disorder. And it showed that uh, near infrared light therapy reduced symptoms and also improved sleep. And that's, there's also, you know, a variety of, of studies from the last couple of years showing that um, red and near infrared light therapy can improve sleep. Um, but what was interesting was this particular study showed that it was the reduction in anxiety that was then leading to better sleep as opposed to it necessarily being a direct effect, although there is one as well. There's been other studies that have shown that even in insomniacs that um, red light therapy can can improve sleep. So um, it, it's the amount of information showing um, mental health benefits to Juve is increasing. And I know we've talked on the show before about how it reduces inflammation, um, how it increases ATP production in cells so it improves cellular health and how that translates to improvements in all these different symptoms. It um, can help reduce pain. It can help, um, you know, it, it, it can help in a variety of situations that I think are really relevant to health. But one of the things that I have recently done is really recommit. I have about once a year, especially after I travel, I completely fall out of the habit of juving. Um, and if I've done a lot of travel, right, and I've been away from my juve um, for a, a week or so, I just, um, it's just one of those things that I, I really struggle to, to carve out that 20 minutes um, at, at, you know, when I come back. And so one of the things that happened this fall, as again, I've sort of mentioned on the show, um, the, the stress of my father's heart attack and all of the travel associated with it when I was already really spread too thin as it was really sent my physical and mental health into a nosedive. And so as I've been really working to recover from that and really looking at like broad sweeping changes to how I've structured my life, one of the things that I'm doing in the self-care arena is making sure that I juve every single day. And some days I've even managed to, to fit in two sessions. So I'm um, finding a time for a session uh, in the morning when I shower and then also another session before bed on those days. Um, and that I, I think has been better for sort of pu pulling me out of the, the funk that I was in for a couple of months um, on top of all of, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot. I've made a lot of changes that are all geared at, um, you know, really putting my health first and foremost, but, um, but this has been one of the keys for me. And, um, and it's funny, every time I get back in the habit after I've fallen out of the habit, I always go like, what, why did I let myself stop? Like, I know that this immediately makes me feel better, that I feel better all day, that it's something that my body super responds to. And I've had that experience once again, as I get back in the habit and I go, I, once again, I let myself get out of the habit. And I know that every time that um, it, it really helps to <laughs> demonstrate to me just how big of a difference juve red light therapy is, is actually making in my life. But relevant for this show, um, there's new new data just from this year in both animal and, and human studies showing a, a mental health benefit to juve. And I, I think that's very exciting. Um, not that it would be a um, substitute for any of the other things that we've talked in the show, but it definitely would be an excellent adjunct. And I think... Also, I want to point out that even though you and I might know all the things, like we can look up the science and we can tell you what to do, we can tell you um, <laughs> all that stuff. We're human just like you. And mm -hmm. so if you've been not getting enough sleep or you've been not being physical or not getting sunshine or not doing red light therapy or whatever it is that you know helps you feel your best – you are not alone. You are human. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no I could have or should have or wish I would have. Like none of that is getting you progress towards being the solution oriented person that we talked about. We want you to be right. So um, think about what you can do to build in those healthy habits, especially as we look towards, you know, just a couple of what, like 
a week or two from now, a new decade. And so um, I think it's easier to build in those habits because everyone around us is doing them, but there's no reason to wait until then. You know, set a reminder or a timer on your phone to do those things. I know that's what Matt has been doing because I've been juving for a while, but Matt hadn't. And with seasonal depression and anxiety and that kind of stuff, I'm like, you're getting in this light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like set a timer and, um, you know, do do what you need to do to get yourself onto whatever path helps you feel your best. And we hope that this show has helped share some ideas on what some of those um, could be, whether it's adding nutrient density or mindfulness, you know, whatever it is. So um, I want to thank our sponsor, Juve, again, for um, both existing so that we can have this awesome um, (laughs) science-backed resource to help us feel our best, but also um, for supporting the show. If you want to check them out, you go to juvejoovv.com slash paleoview. And as we've talked about previously, there's a variety of sizes. It's quite an investment, I understand. Um, But you can get kind of the Lego components that... um, our building blocks to add on to one another. Um, maybe it's a holiday gift you can give yourself or, you know, your partner to, for you guys to do together. Um, both, you could give a solo to yourself and a solo to your partner, and then you could Lego them together. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and build it up over time because it, it is an investment in your health the same way that, you know, buying organic on the, Dirty 15 is an investment in your health. And um, we hope that you see those benefits and that it's um, worth it for you in the long run. We know both Sarah and I can speak positively to it and the science speaks positively to it. So um, again, if you want to check it out, it's com slash not the paleo view, just paleo view. Um, and thank you, Sarah, for all the science on what was very much a selfish show, even though Kayla had an awesome question. <laughs> Kayla I'm, had an excellent question. Might have just nudged it, so it relevant. Nudged it to the top a little bit. A <laughs> uh-huh. little bit, little bit. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Again, we super appreciate your reviews on iTunes and your interaction on social media. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.